0: Welcome back. Last year, U.S. authorities detained more than 76,000 unaccompanied minors at the southern border, and after a long and perilous journey, many of those children end up in our region, sponsored by local family members. Most of them do not speak English, and many are escaping trauma in their home countries. How are schools ensuring these students are supported and can excel? We'd love to have you join this conversation by calling 800- 433-8850 433-8850 because we'll be focusing on Prince George's County. Do you live in Prince George's County? What are your thoughts on the county school system, especially how it deals with unaccompanied minors? 800-433-8850. Joining us now is Kavitha Cardoza. She's a special correspondent for WAMU who I remember picking up on a corner on Connecticut Avenue on a snowy day like today many years ago when she was waving to get a ride. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was a a little w- worse than today, but yes, uh, I'll never forget that, Kojo.
0: I'm glad you remember it. You still owe me. You've spent you've spent, <laughs> you've spent more than a year reporting on undocumented students in our region, and just this week, you launched a five-part series here on WAMU. Tell us more about the series and why you chose to focus specifically on Prince George's County.
1: I was shocked, Kojo, when I heard that Prince George's County was the fourth highest um, Took in the fourth highest number of unaccompanied minors, um, I I just had no idea, and so when I started digging some more, I uh, I found that the previous year they were the third highest, and so I wanted to do some more reporting, but of course reporting on unaccompanied, um, y- you know un- undocumented people, let alone children, is really challenging. Because I don't speak Spanish, it's really hard to get in touch. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time building building trust. But as I was reporting, I found that Prince George's County Schools were doing a lot to help these children. They had created a new newcomer program uh, to help them learn English. They had hired counselors and social workers, and they were very intentionally being welcoming.
0: Um, can you give us a little bit? Background briefly, how is it that these kids go from being detained at the southern U.S. border to sitting in a classroom in Prince George's County?
1: Um, it's it's kind of complicated, but basically when they reach the border and they're detained or they ask for asylum, they're put in the detention centers. Um, for a while, it's supposed to be a few weeks. It can take longer. And then... Um, It's really several agencies are working together to kind of get these children placed with either family members or sponsors across the country. Um, Prince George's County has a lot of, has a very large community from Central America already settled here. So it makes sense that they have relatives or parents already in this region.
0: Why do schools, Kavita, play such a critical role in helping immigrant children to adapt?
1: Because often they are the first um, place, Kojo, that many of these children said they were shown any kindness. Um, I always think of, um, of, you know, educators as kind of first responders. They are the ones helping these children deal with a new language, new culture, new weather, new rules, just new everything,
0: Let's talk with one of those educators. Dr. Karen Woodson is the former principal of Mary Harris Mother Jones Elementary School in Prince George's County. She is now the founder and CEO of Leading for School Improvement, which advises schools on English language learner programs. Dr. Woodson, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: You were an elementary school principal in Prince George's County. What did you see happening there?
2: Well, what we saw was an increasing proportion of our ESOL students. We recognized that they were newcomers, and we saw a 300% increase in three years. Um, We knew um, that newcomers um, were English learners who had very specific needs that we needed to address.
0: You oversaw the development of programs for newly arrived immigrant students, a number which grew significantly over the past few years. These newcomers now make up 16% of the student body. How did you address the needs of those students?
2: We began to recognize that our newcomers needed specific supports, particularly around instruction, Um, around our ability to engage their parents and their families, and around counseling. And we took those three areas and began to work with our team, um, our school-based teams, to develop and intensify our approach to meeting the full accompaniment of their needs. So, for example, around instruction, um, we were able to put in place newcomer programs, in particular with our teachers leading kindergarten newcomer programs that they custom designed for our particular context. Um, we were also able to tune into the counseling needs of our students. I knew that I needed to find, you know, bilingual a bilingual counselor who had experience in dealing with the trauma that many of our newcomers um, brought into the schoolhouse. And then we also accelerated our ability to connect families and students with um, county resources that could help um, um, address the needs that they had, Um, medical resources, um, addressing food insecurity issues, being able to connect them to counseling supports in the community. This three-way Uh, This three uh, uh, ways of looking at the needs, looking at the instructional component, the whole parent family engagement component, and the counseling component proved to be something that helped the school really intensify the supports to meet their needs.
0: We'd love to have you join the conversation. Give us a call at 800-433-8850. How well does your school district handle English language learners? Is English your second language? How did your school support you? 800-433-8850. You can also send us a tweet at Kojo Show. Dr. Woodson, most of these children are coming from Central America. Does the school system, does it matter to the school system whether their status is undocumented or not?
2: Well, as a school system, it is, of course, um, the answer would be no, because it's illegal okay. to inquire of a student's immigration status. And so for us, you'll hear me use the term newcomer or newly arrived. So we would track the numbers of students who were arriving to us from the Northern Triangle El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. We saw the numbers of students from those com- uh, countries really increasing at a rapid pace over the past three years, and that is the lens that we use to identify who our newcomers were. Um, we also wanted to make sure that we adhered to kind of like the state definition for what a newcomer is, which is essentially newly arrived to the United States within the past year. So using those criteria, we were able to see the numbers of our students who were, again, newly arrived um, from these three countries in the Northern Triangle. It allowed us to get a good solid count. Can I guarantee that every single student is undocumented? Of course not, because that is something that we do not ask, as it has a chilling effect on enrollment. But clearly, we could see the numbers of students coming in from those three countries And the um, the the evidence of trauma that was so pervasive in in the student population. And so, you know, meeting with key um, members of my staff as a principal and being able to engage in weekly meetings with key members of my staff really enabled us to put in place supports for, for our newcomers.
0: Well, juggling two or more cultures some people might find difficult, how do you help students find the balance between adapting to the U.S. while also honoring their home culture and language?
2: Absolutely. And so um, that is one of the key tenets of being able to support uh, newcomers is to make sure that we value um, their homes, we value their culture, we value their languages We learned right away, for example, that a number of our students were not Spanish speakers, as one might anticipate, um, but in fact were speaking more indigenous languages like MAM and Quiche, And so it did um, challenge us to find language resources in those languages that we can pull on for interpretation supports, for reaching out to those families in those new languages that are not Spanish. Um, We also were very adept at posting our, you know, bilingual is your superpower signs throughout the building, being able to provide um, uh, what we would call sheltered support, small groups of newcomer students, meeting with a caring and well-trained ESOL teacher and bilingual counselor to help ease their transition into schooling in the United States. But I would say most of all, we showed them love. We showed them um, true caring and we mitigated as many barriers as we could that stand in the way of the children being able to engage academically. And so, for example, a barrier could be food insecurity. A barrier could be, hey, I need to get in and get my immunization so I can come to school. Um, A barrier could be access to medical care, access to glasses. So we became very adept at mitigating these barriers so that our students can actually engage in the instruction that we plan for them.
0: And one of the things you demonstrated personally, learning a second language may not be that difficult. You learned Spanish yourself. You speak it fluently and that surprises some students, right? How have you turned that <laughs> into how have you turned that into a learning lesson?
2: Absolutely. Um yes, I, I am fluent in Spanish and I used it daily to communicate with my students um, and to show them that yes i may be fluent but guess what this is what you're going to look like in a very few years from now in fact your spanish excuse me your english is going to be way better than my spanish because you are learning the english of science the english of social studies the English of math. You're learning the academic English of language art. You're getting multiple proficiencies in English. I never did that with my Spanish. And so I would always encourage the students, don't be afraid. And I would always say, you know, as a speaker, a fluent speaker of another language, I never fear making a mistake. Mistakes are good. Make the mistake. It's all part of the learning process.
0: We're talking about how Prince George's County is adapting to a growing number of unaccompanied children. We're talking with Dr. Karen Woodson, the former principal of Mary Harris Mother Jones Elementary School. She is now founder and CEO of Leading for School Improvement, which advises schools on English language learner programs. Dr. Woodson, in the meantime, what can trauma look like in kids at school? What did your school do to help students cope with that trauma?
2: Trauma can manifest itself in a number of ways. Um, You could see students um, crying, seemingly for no reason. Um, You may see um, outbursts in the students um, from a behavioral point of view, you know, um, um, sort of uh, kind of, um, you see some rage um, on occasion. Um, You can see students who are, you know, perhaps um, under a table, or afraid to, to come out, afraid to engage. Um, you can see students who 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 you know may exhibit you know um, inappropriate behaviors in terms of interacting with with their um, peers. Um, so it manifests itself in a range of ways that we as a school community have to be attuned to and very agile in terms of being able to respond to support the students.
0: Um, Karen Woodson, how have the teachers and staff responded to all of this?
2: Oh, my gosh. The teachers and staff absolutely have been amazing, very welcoming to the students. It is the teachers and the staff that make it happen for um, for our children. And so, for example, as a leader, I've got to make sure that I put a key structures in place in order to empower the staff to, to do this work. Um, what is a key structure that I use, for example? Mm-hmm. I met with my parent engagement team. That whole team consisted of a parent engagement assistant, a community resource coordinator, a counselors, including the ESOL counselors, the assistant principal over counseling and the school nurse. We would meet as a team every week for one and a half hours to identify specific actions needed to respond to our newcomer population and to all students, of course, but particularly our newcomer population and making the commitment as a school leader to meet on a weekly basis with this team was transformative. It allowed us to sharpen our vision around what intensified supports mean for newcomer students. It allowed me as the leader to link budget to support that vision, which is huge. And it allowed us as a team and me as the leader to really support identifying and implementing key actions that would allow us to really provide a full program of newcomer supports for this population.
0: Well, Dr. wasn't transformative, yes, but also probably tiring. How did your teachers deal with the fact that there was so <laughs> much more to do and yet somehow maintain the positive attitudes they have?
2: And so, yes, it can be a little tiring, and we supported each other We would come together and wholly committed ourselves to deep professional learning around what we could do for children. Any small win that we experienced with a newcomer student um, was indeed energizing and helped us to really come together and overcome the challenges in serving the population. And so, yes, um, it can be a bit tiring, but You move that out of the way quickly as you see the students responding and you're beginning to see results and you're beginning to see the students learning English and being able to um, fully um, engage in, in the schoolhouse. These things were definitely energizing and helped to sustain us. And again, as principal, my ability to be directly involved and to commit to the time needed To speak with the team that I mentioned is absolutely critical. This is not something that a principal of a high EL, English Learner Impact School, would just delegate to someone. No, no, no. You're that leader in charge. You really need to have a seat at the table so you can gain perspective. I believe that is the singular most important um um, um, leadership move that I made as principal was my ability to listen and my ability to listen to the right people.
0: Kavitha Kadoza is back with us. Kavitha, a number of older students have to manage not just school, but also work. Their families rely on them to send money back home. Tell us about that.
3: I was shocked, Kojo, by they finish a full day at school. And then from about 3.30 to one in the morning, they are working and they work in what one social worker called the most arduous, crappy jobs there are. And so it's really physically exhausting. And then they have to do homework and then they come to school. And she said that's where the temptation hits, where, you know, you can't sustain two full-time jobs, as it were, for a long time. And, and the money usually wins out because that is the difference between whether their family can eat or not.
0: And among the younger students, one of the students you spoke with is named Anna, a little girl who is learning English. Tell us about Anna.
3: Anna, she says, is a a beautiful little seven-year-old kindergartner. And when I first met her, she was new to the newcomer class, and she would just say, Anna can't speak. Anytime (laughs) I asked her something in English, she was very clear. Uh, But then I went back just two months later and she was just had come so far and was just so much more confident i think we're going to listen to a little bit of tape with anna
0: as a matter of fact let's listen to a bit of your conversation that you had with anna here it is
3: i practiced on my mom's phone oh you practice on
1: your mom's phone mm-hmm.
0: how and google okay. if we go somewhere and my mom said how much and i said it's 3 dollars or 4 dollars
1: and how does your mother feel when you help her?
0: Good. She felt good. She said, I love you. And who doesn't like to hear, I love you, <laughs> especially from a parent? Gavita, as part of this series, you also talk to experts about why it's so important for kids to socialize when learning a new language. How does that play out in schools, and what kind of challenge do schools face when kids self-segregate by language?
3: Well, it isn't even kids self segregating it's the way our, our you know we are set up um where segregate a lot of schools are just kind of segregated by race and income and also by language uh, i spoke to two researchers from UCLA and they said that a child having just one english speaking friend can be can make such a huge difference in their ability to learn english and their grades because oftentimes the kids can talk to each other and they don't have that in schools that are, you know, Spanish-dominant or other-language-dominant speakers. Um, we also saw that um, that is a huge challenge for, um, for students to learn English.
0: Kavitha, all kids are dealing with not seeing friends and teachers in person right now. What challenges are these kids facing in particular?
3: Well, one, they're not hearing, they're not seeing their friends if they have mm-hmm. friends who speak English. They are not hearing, you know, teachers speak in the hallway, in, um, at the bus stop. There's all that extra kind of exposure that um, they're missing out on. And also remember, Kojo, if they go to schools where um, most of the kids speak a certain language and not English, then they often live in apartment buildings or areas where the dominant language is not English. So they're missing out on all of that. And then, of course, there's all the technology, which, you know, after my call dropped out, I can absolutely relate <laughs> to that, Um it's, it's just harder to build relationships online. Um, you know, the district had been teaching all classroom teachers to use visual aids and hands-on learning and those kinds of things. It's really hard to do over Zoom.
0: Well, John in Roslyn, Virginia, would like to help. John, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
3: Hello. Uh, I'm uh, interested in, in what you're doing in Prince George's. I actually lived in Prince George's when my kids were very young and uh i i love the place but um what what i am particularly interested in is language because i'm studying language i'm retired myself and just trying to uh, keep myself sharp so i'm studying spanish actually and uh, i i study online i i use duo we don't like have we
0: don't have a lot of time left um john could you get to Which your question i think
3: it's a great tool and i would like to help by
0: Any suggestions, Dr. Woodson, for John?
2: You know, the best option for John, you need to be engaging regularly with a Spanish speaker. That would be the best. I also would want you to tune into news on Univision or any of the Spanish language stations. Turn into that news every single day. Listen, listen every single day. That's going to train your ear, but you also need to find a Spanish speaker with whom you can um, have meaningful conversations. Even if it's over phone, it's better over Zoom because you can see the facial cues and, you know, that will help with your understanding. But you definitely want to practice authentic Spanish and listen to that news every day. Train your ear and, and train your tongue. That would be the best.
0: Kavitha, in the 30 seconds or so we have left, part five of your series airs tomorrow on Morning Edition. What can we expect to hear?
3: It's about family reunification. Kojo, oftentimes when these children come and they're reunited with their parents, they think there's going to be a fairy tale ending, you know, both parent and child. And what uh, educators often see is that it doesn't turn out like that. The child is resentful. They feel they were abandoned. And the parent feels that the child is ungrateful and isn't acknowledging all their sacrifices.
0: Kavitha Cardoza, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure.
0: Dr. Karen Woodson, thank you for joining us.
2: My pleasure, thank you.
0: This segment on unaccompanied minors in Prince George's County was produced by Ines Renike and our conversation with Reverend William Lamar was produced by Richard Cunningham. Coming up Friday on the Politics Hour, what bills did the D.C. Council pass before the end of the legislative session and what was left on the table? We'll get a year-end wrap-up from Councilmember Charles Allen plus Montgomery County Councilmember Will Jawando talks about the county's latest coronavirus restrictions and his efforts to prevent rent gouging. That all starts tomorrow at noon until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nambi.
2: The Kojo Nambi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sidney Granit, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Ines Renike. Our managing producer is Inga-Lisa Shobstorf. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kitt. Her past shows and more content, at kojoshow.org. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support The Kojo Nnamdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the donate button at wamu.org and thanks.